KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, dirty work and the people who do it, the low-income workers who do our most ethically troubled jobs. A.L. Press will explain. His new book is called Dirty Work. Also, slavery and its political legacy in Congress, more than 1,700 congressmen owned black slaves, according to the Washington Post. Even after the abolition of slavery in 1865, hundreds of men who had owned slaves were senators and members of the House of Representatives. The last senator who had owned slaves served in 1922. Eric Foner will comment on the political power of slavery in America's past. Now it's time to talk about the Constitution. Our Constitution is not good. It urgently needs to be reimagined if we want justice and equality for all. That's what Eli Mistal says in his new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. He's the nation's justice correspondent. He's a fellow at the Type Media Center and a frequent guest on MSNBC and CNN. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and he's also great on Twitter. Eli Mistal, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's talk today about the Fifth Amendment. As everybody knows, the Fifth Amendment says the government can't make you incriminate yourself. But there's a second part of the Fifth Amendment that's not so well known. It says the government can't take away your property unless, unless what? Unless they give you just compensation, right? And that, that is, that is the, that is the, that's the top of the pyramid question. Like that's where the fight is. The government has a clear, unquestionable right to take your property. It's called the right of eminent domain. Every sovereign nation has it. It probably goes back to, you know, I made, I think I make the joke in the book. It probably goes back to like, you know, the village caveman chief, like (laughs) taking the cave from this other guy because they needed the cave to store the food. Like you can go back probably to the beginning of human civilization to understand some version of the of the government's theory for eminent domain. So the, so my question is what does this have to do with black people? <laughs> well, it does because well we'll put it like this John that the government can take property is unquestionable. Who are the government going to take the property from? That's where we have some fun, right? And it turns out that more often than not, the government is going to take property from people who are poor, from people who are politically unconnected, from people who are powerless. That's the property they're going to go get because in part of this just compensation rule, you can pay less for property from people who are poor, unconnected, not powerful, don't have a lot to begin with. You can get that property on the cheap in a lot of situations. Also, because those people cannot organize to fight and defend themselves and defend their kind of property rights against you, against you, the government in court, as effectively as rich folks. Right. And so what we've seen throughout history is the government, the American government, constantly kind of going after the property of poor folks, minorities, and in fact, not justly compensating them um, for, for their land, but cheaply compensating them, shall we say, for their land. Well, the fights over eminent domain recently have been fought by libertarian forces on the right. For them, of course, government is the problem and private property is the solution. And liberals usually support the government in these fights because the government is supposed to be acting on behalf of the public. But who is this public? Yeah, so this is where I end up agreeing with Republicans a little bit, which is super uncomfortable for me because you said it exactly right. Yes, the general liberal position is that eminent domain is a good power for the government to have because when the government takes the property, it's going to do useful public things with the property, right? It's going to take the property so it can build a hospital or a library or a public space. It's going to take the economic uh, vitality of the property and preserve it as a historical site, for instance. Maybe it's going to take some, maybe you've got a lot of property, it's going to take a little bit of your land to put up windmills or solar panels. All of these useful things is what the government is what we think of as liberals of the government doing when it takes your property. In practice, in practice, what happens more often than not is that the government takes your property and then gives it to private investors 
on the cheap under some nebulous argument of economic development or redevelopment. So this power of eminent domain that should be used to build hospitals and wind farms is in fact used to build like baseball stadiums and basketball arenas, right? It's the government taking the property in, you know, let's say uh, in, a, in, a, in an urban environment, giving it to a rich white sports owner on the cheap so they can build a billion dollar palace for their toy sports team and not share the money, by the way, back with, back with the government, back with the state, back with the people whose property got took. And that, that's just one example. There, there are lots of, you know, the stadium example is the most obvious one, but there are lots of like allegedly public purpose things that the government will take property for that actually end up in the pockets of private investors. This all kind of crescendoed with the major Supreme Court case called Kilo versus City of New London. That's where uh, the, city, the state of Connecticut basically took an entire development zone and gave it to some economic developers for for revitalization or whatever. It was just a cash grab for these private investors and and the people whose property was was taken. They went to court, including one Suzette Kilo, who just had a house that she didn't want to give up in New London, Connecticut. And they lost five to four with Stephen Breyer writing the majority opinion, defending the government's use of eminent domain and all that kind of stuff. And Clarence Thomas writing the dissent, and this is like the one, you could go through the annals of American history and not find many places where I agree with Clarence Thomas over Stephen Breyer, but this is, this is the one. This is, <laughs> okay. like, I think Clarence Thomas had the better of that argument because what Thomas said was that public use cannot be whatever the government says it is that day. It's got to mean something more tangible than whatever the government thinks it is, because too often the government will say it's public use when what they really mean is they're going to get some money from private investors. And I agree with Thomas kind of, ill. I know, it's hard. I can see the pain on your face. <laughs> So your piece for the nation opens with a fascinating example. It's, it's not from the 1950s, it's from the 1850s. And the public purpose was a great one. The creation of the greatest of all American urban parks, Central Park in New York City. We are so happy that we have a Central Park in New York City. What does this have to do with black people? There was an entire village, an entire community of free land-owning, voting Black people who lived in what is now Central Park. It was called Seneca Village. Hundreds of Black families lived there because back in the, this, you know, back in the long ago, in the before times, in the long, long ago, the white people who initially, who, who owned, and I say that very loosely because we know that all of this land was taken from somebody else, but the white people who owned kind of at that point, what was upper Manhattan, because remember most of Manhattan in the 1850s was located basically below 14th street, um, really below Canal Street. And so they owned this Manhattan estate that was basically the country, which was, it was literally farmland. And the, this white family decided that they would sell the farmland to undesirables, which included black people and quite a few Irish people. And so an entire community sprung up basically on what is now the west side of Central Park, kind of above, uh, you know, above the 70s, um, um, where like if Broadway went straight through the park, kind of west of where Broadway would be above the 70s, there was this whole village of Black people who owned property. Remember, in the 1850s, there was no, there was no 15th Amendment. So there was no guarantee of suffrage for Black people. But New York State had a rule that if you were black and you owned at least, I think it was $200 worth of property, you could vote. Seneca Village was one of the only places in New York where you, where you could be a black person and own property because that was the only, one of the only places that white people would sell you property. So Seneca Village had a large percentage of the entire black voting power in New York City at the time. And they took it from them. They just, they just took the land from them to make Central Park. So this is an example from the 1850s, but you say 
all of the tricks that would be deployed against black communities in the 20th century were used against the people of Seneca Village in the 1850s. Tell us about these tricks. Yeah, so what the first thing they do is they say that they, they basically say that the property is condemned, that it's that it's swampland or, 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 or whatever, that it's, um, that it's not economically productive property and it's dangerous property. They use this to kind of drive down the price that the government will eventually have to pay under the Fifth Amendment's just compensation um, laws. That also kind of creates public sentiment that this property is not valuable to the property owners, that it's much more valuable for whatever the public use they are, they are selling that week. I brought up in the book that the Central Park plan was not the only plan for a park in Manhattan. There was another plan where they would have taken Jones Wood. Jones Wood is a, is a place on the kind of Upper East Side, kind of in the 60s on the East Side on the water. It wasn't going to be as big as Central Park, but it was going to be this kind of big green space. Only a few families lived there, as opposed to the hundreds of families that lived in Seneca Village, but they were rich white families. They were the Joneses. They were wealthy white people, which means, like everybody else, they lived below 14th Street. But, you know, Joneswood was their country estate. The government went to take their property. The, the, the Joneses sued New York State, and they won. They won a lawsuit that prevented New York State from taking their property. So then New York State went and took, sorry, New York City then went and took um, the property of Black people, who also sued, but, oh, the Black people lost. And... Now we have Central Park. Do you have any suggestions about what the state could do now to pay the black owners of Seneca Village what their land was actually worth? One of the nice things about owning property is that we have we have records of that, right? We know, we know who they were. We know their names. We can go find their descendants. And, you know, if you want to talk about just compensation, they were paid... Uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong and I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember them on the plot, but so I'm not going to quote the numbers to you. Right. But you know, they, they, they got a couple hundred dollars profit from, you know, when they bought the property to what the uh, 1857 authorities paid them um, for the property when they took it. But that property, you know, and you think about the seventies on central park West, that's pretty expensive land just at the moment. <laughs> and I bet that if we went and we found all the descendants and gave them what their property is really worth. That, that would go a long way to ameliorating the historical hurt and the historical uh, uh, tragedy of the government destroying their town. I don't, I don't think we're going to do that, but like that would be, oh, I believe the word would be, that would be a good way to repay, perhaps a reparation um, of, <laughs> of the harm that was caused. Excellent. So eminent domain, you say, is one example of how our Constitution is what you gently uh, term an imperfect work that needs to be reimagined. What's your larger argument here about achieving justice and equality for all with the Constitution we have? Right. So, look, if we're going to stick with this Constitution, which there's going to be a whole another argument about maybe we shouldn't. But if we're going to stick with this Constitution, then we need to interpret it in a way that for that that puts at the forefront the issues of justice, fairness, and equality. The Constitution was written by slavers and colonists and people willing to make deals with slavers and, colon, and, and, and colonists. It's not a great document. I mean, it's just, it's just straight up. It's not very, it literally has not been all that successful if you consider the fact that we had to get into a fighting hot war over it, yes, less than 100 years after it was ratified. Like, there, there are other ways to think about, you know, perfect documents, and our Constitution would not meet that standard, right? So if we're going to stick with it, at the very least, we must take the amendments that allegedly fixed it, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments, and I would add the 19th Amendment, 13th Amendment outlawed slavery, the 14th Amendment call for equal protection, the 15th Amendment um, gave voting rights, universal suffrage to men, and the 19th Amendment eventually gave universal suffrage to women. Those four amendments together become the most important parts of the Constitution if we're going to live in a pluralistic society. And so my fix for it is that everything that we do has to be strained through a lens and pass under under the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 19th Amendments. And if it doesn't, then it cannot be legitimate. 
And I would kind of start there as the baseline. I, you could call, I would call myself a 14th Amendment ideologist, right? Like <laughs> that, that, that's a thing. Why can't that be a thing? I would make the, the 14th Amendment is, is the thing that makes all of the other amendments legitimate. Equal protection of the laws. It's a must. You can't have a free society without equal protection of laws. You can't have a free society without universal suffrage. And if you're doing things in your society, Republicans in Georgia, that, that, that take away from universal suffrage or equal protection, then that society is not legitimate. And that shouldn't be a that really shouldn't be a controversial position. Ellie Mistal, he wrote about the use and abuse of eminent domain for The Nation magazine. You can read that online at thenation.com. His new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, is out now. Kirkus Reviews called it a reading of the Constitution that all social justice advocates should study. And Matt Levine of Bloomberg Opinion called it brisk and brutal, full of both laugh-out-loud lines and righteous fury. I agree. Thank you, Ellie. This was great. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about slavery and its political legacy in Congress. Here's something we didn't know until last week. More than 1,700 congressmen owned black slaves. Even after the abolition of slavery in 1865, hundreds of men who had owned slaves were senators and members of the House. Even into the 20th century, the last senator who had owned slaves served in 1922. The extent of the power of enslavers explains a lot about racism in American history. And now the Washington Post has compiled the first database of slaveholding members of Congress. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught history at Columbia for a long time. His Work on Reconstruction and the Civil War won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to see you, John. Well, you compiled the first ever list of black office holders during Reconstruction in the 1860s and 70s. Now the Washington Post has done something similar for what we could call the other side. You were able to identify more than 1,500 African-Americans who held political office in the South during the Reconstruction era. That book is called Freedom's Lawmakers, a directory of black office holders during Reconstruction. Creating that list, I know, was hard work. How did you do it? <laughs> yeah, it was hard work because uh, a, a little thing uh, known as the Internet didn't really exist when I was doing that. There was no ancestry. There was no nothing, no Google. So I had to do it the old fashioned way. That is going through uh, archival records, census reports. Um, you know, letters, all sorts of things. Um, and uh, it, it was a, it took a lot of work, but I was very gratified. I was able to identify quite a few, as you said, about 1500 black men who held some public office. The Washington Post project was about members of Congress, as you said. My book is about all sorts people from, you know, justice of the peace on up. There were uh, 14 African-Americans who served in Congress during Reconstruction, uh, 14 in the House of Representatives and two in the Senate for a total of 16. Obviously, uh, there were more slave owners than that. They're serving as as uh, members of Congress. And as you said, it, it, these uh, figures that The Washington Post came up with, on the one hand, you might say, well, I'm not really surprised. After all, slavery was so important. And certainly in the South, if you were going to hold public office, you're a slave owner. Every, every congressman from the South just about owned a slave at some point in their life. Uh, but on the other hand, the number is probably higher than one might have expected. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it does, as you said, uh, show us something about the political power of slavery in this country, even after the abolition of slavery. 
A word here on terminology. The term enslavers is being used now instead of slaveholders, along with enslaved people instead of slaves. Please explain the change here. This is slightly controversial. There are people who don't like using enslaved people or enslavers. I am a little uncomfortable with it because I think the word slave is a well-known word. It does not require explanation. If you say somebody was a slave or a slave owner, everybody will know what you mean by saying that. The people who want to change the terminology, uh, their argument is, well, somehow calling saying this person was a slave suggests that's the essence of their being. That's that defines them. And we we don't want to say that these were people. These were men, women, uh, children. They were husbands and wives. They weren't just slaves. And so we should they were enslaved. Somebody else had put them into this category. Uh, And similarly, the slave owner uh, is now called in some circles the enslaver, that the the active person is the person who puts you into slavery or owns you, not not the slave. So, you know, look, terminology has changed many, many times, particularly with African-Americans. I mean, you could run down our history. At first, they were called Africans around the time of the American Revolution, colored, Negro with a small n, Negro with a a capital N, African-American. Uh, Afro-American, now black with a capitalized B, uh, is widely used. So uh, there's nothing unusual about terminology changing and how different groups are described. My mentor, Richard Hofstadter, you know who he was, a great historian and a great writer, always told us, if you can use one word instead of three or four, use one. And that's the virtue of slave. (laughs) It's a simple way of describing a situation in which a person is held as a slave. That's a legal category. It's a chattel uh, situation. So I don't want to get into a debate about what we should use. I think many of these are used interchangeably nowadays. Thinking about it does help us think about the long history of slavery in this country. So I will be using them interchangeably. Enslavers in Congress the Washington Post found, represented 37 states, not just the slave states of the Old South, but they said every state in New England, much of the Midwest, and many Western states were represented by slaveholders in Congress. How could that be? Well, of course, at the beginning of the Republic, uh, there were no free states. Every state had slavery of the original 13. New York, where I live, was a slave state well into the 19th a century in terms of slavery being a legal uh, institution and well-to-do people generally owned slaves. This was not an unusual thing, both in the North and in the South. If you go further West, it becomes a little more tricky because states like Illinois and uh, Ohio, let's say, it never had slavery legally when they were states. The Northwest Ordinance barred slavery in those areas. Nonetheless, Slave owners did move in there, and some of them held slaves, even when it wasn't quite legal to do so. But even putting that aside, there was a lot of geographic mobility, people, you know, people from the South. Let's take Abraham Lincoln, born in Kentucky, a slave state, eventually moved into uh, Indiana and Illinois and served one term in Congress. Now, I don't think Lincoln is on their list because Lincoln never personally owned slaves, but his wife did. He married into a slave-owning family, the Todds. So Lincoln is a person who shows that's how widespread slavery was. So a lot of the people from non-slave states are people who moved in there from the South. Uh, They may not have brought their slaves with them, but they had owned slaves when they were uh, in other states. When was uh, slavery abolished in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania? Something like 1830? Well, the thing is that slavery was abolished in those states very gradually. The laws that abolished slavery, which were passed during and after the American Revolution, uh, said basically that any child born to a slave henceforth will become free like at age 21 or something like that. So no slave was actually freed by those laws, no living slave. So slavery lingered on by the 18 teens and 20s. New York still had slave owners. Even these were people now getting more elderly. 
The absolute abolition of slavery in New York didn't come till 1827. So before that, you could certainly have people in uh, public office who owned slaves. And again, well-to-do people, that's where they put some of their money. So then, then we have secession in 1860. And in 1861, 11 southern states seceded. And of course, their lawmakers left Congress. But I was surprised to see that more than 20% of the members who remained in Congress after secession, as the Civil War was being fought over slavery, over 20% of the members of Congress were current or former slaveholders during the Civil War. Uh, How could that be? Well, you remember that there were, first of all, these so-called border states, four significant slave states, or at least Delaware, rather small, but Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, Delaware, all remained in the union as slave states. Their representatives in Congress all owned slaves. Even they were not fighting for slavery. They were fighting for the union, those states, but nonetheless, uh, their representatives were often Uh, slave owners. And then uh, after the Civil War, after the abolition of slavery with the 13th Amendment, uh, and after Reconstruction, the old white supremacist ruling class came back into power in the South. And these were people who had owned slaves earlier in their lives. So it shouldn't be surprising that in the 1880s and 1890s, there were plenty of former slave owners representing Southern states Uh, in Congress, and even, as you mentioned, into the early 20th century. Of course, there were people who served, who had been slave owners and turned against it. There were people like that and said, no, you know, we we have changed our minds. Slavery is a terrible thing. We're glad it's been abolished. But unfortunately, a lot of white Southerners of the prominent, powerful ones never made that uh, transition. And the Washington Post reported that the first woman ever to serve in the Senate was a former slaveholder. What's the story there? Rebecca Felton, she didn't serve that long in the Senate. I think it was one day, actually. It was a kind of symbolic appointment. She wasn't elected. She was appointed by the governor to fill a vacant seat while Congress was about to go out out of session. Nonetheless, she was the first woman, a white woman, of course, to hold a seat in the Senate. And But she was uh, not exactly a intersectionalist, if you might (laughs) want to use that word, seeing the connection between different kinds of oppression. She had supported women's suffrage uh, in the southern states, but basically on the grounds that since there were more whites than blacks, the women's suffrage would further enhance white political power uh, in the south and uh, make it impossible for blacks to regain the power they'd had in Reconstruction. I understand she had a theory of the causes of the Civil War. Uh, She viewed the Civil War as a punishment from God for the sins of cruel masters. What did she mean by cruel masters? Yes. By the way, Lincoln said in his second inaugural that the, the war was a punishment to the nation by God for its sins, but he meant slavery was the sin. Uh, Rebecca Felton said that the sin the South was being punished for was miscegenation. That is to say, was white men engaging in sexual relations with black women producing a mixed race uh, class of people in the South. And that sin of interracial rape or whatever it was, uh, that's what the South was being punished for. Now, I have to say, when I was in college studying this period, what were the causes of the Civil War was always a question on the final exam. But acceptable answers I don't think ever included God's punishment for white enslavers having sex with their slaves. Yeah, you know, uh, it would be interesting. That question is also on the immigration questionnaire or examination that people coming from abroad who want to become American citizens have to take. I wonder how the immigration officer would respond if uh, a, a new migrant from Mexico or from China or somewhere else said, well, the answer to the cause of the Civil War is the uh, interracial sex in the South. Um, probably they would be shipped back to where they came from. <laughs> now, now, I understand that this same Rebecca Felton was also obsessed not just with white enslavers having sex with their black slaves, but black men having sex with white women. 
Apparently, that's the case. A lot of this comes from the Washington Post research itself, so we give them credit. It was black rapists she talked about, this mythology. You know, Ida B. Wells, who campaigned against lynching, always said, you know, this is a total myth, but it was used to justify lynching, including by Rebecca Felton. Uh, say lynching was perfectly justified, in fact, necessary in order to prevent black men from so raping, supposedly, uh, all these white women. In Wilmington, North Carolina, this was one of the causes of the Wilmington riot of uh, 1898, uh, where uh, the local newspaper had uh, said, you know, this whole had said that this was a total myth, the idea of black rapists running amok but went on to say, you know, it's actually the case that some white women actually love black men and are perfectly happy to have intimate relations with them. This riled up a lot of white people, including Rebecca Felton. And uh, the Wilmington riot uh, seized on this as one of the people who perpetrated it, uh, which led to the death of quite a few black people and the overthrow of the government of Wilmington, North Carolina. Speaking that way about interracial sex was just not acceptable in uh, incident. So Felton has a lot to answer for, the first woman. But I hesitate to say not all women members of Congress held to these uh, these views that she did. Big picture here. What is the significance of this finding, which surprised so many of us, that more than 1,700 members of Congress, senators and representatives, owned slaves or had owned slaves while they were in office or before they took office? Well, I, I think the significance is, again, it just shows the political power of slavery and the long afterlife of slavery. We can assume, even though there were some who changed their mind, no question, we can assume that most of these former slave owners didn't think there was anything wrong with, with their having owned slaves. It, it, it shows the depth and the, the longevity of racist views and pro-slavery views uh, in American history. And I think it does shed light all the way down to the present. Today, there is nobody in Congress who owned a slave. I <laughs> think it's fair to say that. But there are not a heck of a lot of black people either in Congress, nor have there ever been. Uh, I think, according to the trustee Wikipedia, about 160 black men and women have held positions in Congress in all of American history, 160 of them whereas 1,700 slave owners, and of course, the vast majority of the blacks are in the last 20, 30 years since the civil rights movement. You know, yeah, it shows the power of slavery, something that is a key factor in American history. Eric Foner, you can read the Washington Post report and look at their database. There's still many dozens of congressmen who they're not sure about, and they've requested that readers provide information. And this is an ongoing uh, project at the Washington Post. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about dirty work and the people who do it, the low-income workers who do our most ethically troubled jobs. For that, we turn to Al Press. He's an award-winning journalist and writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Nation. He's also a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Type Media Center. His new book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. We reached him today in New York City. AL Press, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. Great to be here. Well, the pandemic brought us to appreciate and to honor and cheer for essential workers, especially hospital staff, but also grocery store clerks, garbage collectors, the delivery men who bring us the stuff we've needed over the past year and a half. But you're concerned with an even more hidden class of workers who do jobs that you call morally troubling, people we'd rather not think about and people who we certainly do not cheer for, who are they? You're very right that, that the term essential jobs almost deserves air quotes in my subtitle because um, I'm not actually saying that were this the just society that many of your listeners would, would like to have, 
these jobs would be around, but they are around. And I'm talking about the people who run America's prison system, the largest prison system in the world, um, as, as you're aware. I'm talking about people who carry out targeted assassinations in the drone program, or people who man the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses. All of those jobs are essential to the American way of life or the prevailing social order. They are not essential in some immutable way that suggests, you know, this is how we would want the world to be. But I do contend in the book that just as we discovered during the pandemic, this sort of convenient arrangement where you had people who, from more privileged professions, white collar uh, professions, bankers, software engineers, who had the, the, the privilege to shelter in place as other people delivered their groceries to them, as other people got the, the goods out of the warehouses for them and, and took great risks. So we have a as well a moral division of labor. And it is not an equal division. It is a division whereby people with fewer choices and opportunities are generally delegated what I refer to as these these sullying, degrading jobs. And we can talk more about the specific cases I look look into. You start uh, your new book, Dirty Work, with a tough case, prison guards. Ever since over-incarceration became an issue, we've blamed uh, the prison guards as a key force, along with the police, pushing for more prisons, more prisoners, longer sentences, because the lobbying by their unions has been so effective. We record our show in California, which the state reached a kind of tipping point a couple of years ago when taxpayers started spending more money on prisons than on schools. We consider prison guards and their unions to be a really malevolent force in our state. But you suggest another way of looking at prison guards. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't deny any of what you just said. It's, it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And I think one other, a, a different way to, um, to think about prison guards is as agents of a society that has built this prison system, not only to warehouse 2 million, more than 2 million of our fellow citizens in often extremely brutal and violent conditions, but also to effectively run our mental health system. Because jails and prisons in the United States, in in I think every state at this point, um, the largest mental health institution is not a public hospital. It is not a community health center. It is a jail or a prison. And actually, I begin the book by by looking at the mental health aides who work at a particularly violent prison in Florida, where the incarcerated people, uh, mentally ill people, are being horrifically abused. And this puts those mental health aides in a terrible dilemma, in a position whereby if they say something, if they report what's happening, they're liable to get in trouble and to uh, you know, have the guards retaliate against them. And they rely on these guards for their own security, to open doors for them and to be there in the rec yard. So if, if they challenge the guards, they're, they're risking something. If they don't challenge them, they're going along with human rights abuses. But in the next section, I do indeed complicate the story by looking at the guards themselves. Let's focus here, as you do at the beginning of your book, on the story of the death of one mentally ill man in this Florida prison named Darren Rainey. We know what happened to him only because of heroic action by a couple of whistleblowers on the prison staff who reported on the sadistic behavior of most of the other guards. And the story is truly horrifying, almost unbearable to read about. But you say these Sadistic guards are not to blame for the system, the inhumane system that they are part of. Right. So, and let me just correct one tiny thing that's very important, actually. None of the staff actually reported what happened to Rainey. It was another prisoner, a guy named Harold Hempstead, who reported it, who blew the whistle. And that tells you something about how the system, you know, constrains all of the people in it, including the very well-intentioned mental health aides I, I interviewed. But to, to turn to the guards, you know, I interviewed one guard in particular in depth. I, he shared his diaries with me. He, he, he spoke to me uh, very frankly about um, the brutality that guards in Florida do meet out. And he called these fellow officers, he called them serial bullies. He said, you know, some of these guys just beat inmates, beat prisoners, uh, you know, in, in a way that's just 
a kind of cruelty he'd never witnessed before. And this guy was a military veteran, as a lot of uh, uh, corrections officers are. Um, so here you're thinking, okay, the way you just described them as this malevolent force is, is exactly accurate. But he went on to say, you know, the people of Florida get what they pay for when, when you talk about what goes on in, their prison, in the prisons. You know, why do these abuses happen? Well, you could, you could attribute it to character flaws, but you could also look at the fact that Florida spends, uh, it has the third largest prison system in the country. And at the time that I was writing and these abuses were occurring, it spent the second least on mental health services in the country. So what do you have? You have a jail and prison system that is overcrowded. It is often filled with people with severe mental health problems who are cycling through. And Bill Curtis, the guard I interviewed, like a lot of the guards, get no training to deal with this particular population. And indeed, if you asked a psychiatrist or asked a psychologist, you know, where would you least want to take a person in the throes of a mental health crisis, they would likely say, you know, a jail or a prison. And yet that's what happens. And so surprise, surprise, you combine a lack of rehabilitative services, a lack of health services, overcrowded conditions, and by the way, a pared down staff, thanks to then Governor Rick Scott, who of course today is Senator Scott, um, who cut the prison budget significantly. And as Curtis said to me, you know, when you're an officer in that, condi- in that in those situations, you learn there's only one way to control the place. And that way is through brute force. And this is sort of the message that society sends, but it's all done and hidden. It's all, it's all sort of veiled from, from scrutiny, not seen. And then when a scandal like the Rainey case erupts, people say, oh, look at those sadistic guards. Well, I'm saying in the book, don't look just at those guards. Look at the, society, the social conditions that gave rise to this system and the shared responsibility that all of us have. But let's be clear, the primary victims of this kind of dirty work, in your view, are not the people who do it. The primary victims are the people they're brutalizing. But you are concerned about what you call the moral and emotional wounds that dirty workers sustain, hidden injuries, they've been called in a famous uh, book from from their work. Uh, Tell us a little more about that. You know, a major theme of my book is is the concept of moral injury, the idea that um, if you are doing a job that requires you to meet out violence or that requires you to um, survey villagers through uh, drones that at any moment could leave innocent civilians dead, um, and you see that, but the society that put you there doesn't, that those jobs carry a psychic toll that is very hard, I think almost impossible to capture in statistics but that is very important in measuring a worker's sense of self-esteem, the degradation they experience, the lack of dignity. You know, Biden said when he accepted the Democratic nomination, he was telling a story about his father. And he said, you know, uh, his father told him, uh, you know, Joey, a a job isn't just uh, a paycheck. It's also a source of dignity. It's about a person's place in the community. Those are the themes I'm looking at and asking, you know, if you're the, the, the prison guards I spoke to, uh, by and large, were people who wanted to do something else. They took a, what, what is called a job of last resort, and they took it maybe because it had benefit. In Florida, the pay is very low, but it does have benefits. So as one of the, one of the guards told me, you know, it was either a little higher salary and no benefits or this job with benefits. But with all of the, and I would say moral costs that go along with it. And, and you're very right that I by no means am saying they're the primary victims. Just as in, in the section of the book on drones, I make it clear that the primary victims of an errant drone strike are innocent civilians, are, are, are people like those killed in the strike as the U.S. was leaving Afghanistan. But there is a second secondary set of victims, I think, that, that in a way are both perpetrators and victims, and, th- and that is these dirty workers. And there's a special case in the prisons, which is prison guards who are people of color. Many of the prisoners, of course, are people of color, and there are also guards who are people of color. And a lot of people's first response would be, well, how can they brutalize their own people? This is another question you've looked into. I interview a black officer, a black uh, security guard, who on one hand told me about the racism of his fellow officers and about being stopped on the way to work 
uh, and pulled over repeatedly. And even when he had his badge ready to show the cop, you know, hey, I'm 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 an officer too. It didn't matter. He was just viewed as as uh, a black man who was a suspect in in the officer's eyes. So all of that is true. And yet at the same time, you know, it's it's quite striking during the era of mass incarceration, states like Florida and and in other parts of the country, the proportion of the prison workforce, um, the correctional workforce that is black and or Latino um, increased significantly as did, by the way, the, the percentage of the, of the workforce that is female. And in the particular prison I'm looking at, Dade, a, a lot of the workforce, the, the frontline guards, were female Black officers who were working and, and, and often coming from the same neighborhoods that some of the incarcerated people came from, very depressed, very um, few opportunities for jobs. And, you know, again, this doesn't in any way take away from the, you know, it doesn't excuse the fact that the, the violence happens and, and, and folks should be held accountable, but it suggests that um, the powerful and the privileged have found a very convenient way to delegate this work to people lower on the social ladder than themselves, and not only to delegate the work, but, but in a way to, to keep both the workers and the work itself invisible. And there's another set of hard-to-see uh, workers that I'm very interested in that you write about, the slaughterhouse workers, who are some of the most degraded, oppressed, and hard-to-find uh, workers in our society. The slaughterhouses have been moved out to remote uh, rural areas specifically to get them away from the big cities where they were uh, more visible. I remember that there was a time when this was a more honorable job. From the 40s to the 60s, slaughterhouse workers had a strong Progressive Union, the United Packing House Workers, which fought for and won a national contract, which gave them not only high wages and safe working conditions, but this was also a union that was famous for its fight for racial integration of their workplace and social justice in the nation. They they got blacks appointed shop stewards. They supported the March on Washington. Then in the early 70s, this union was broken. The union workers were fired. The line was speeded up. The slaughterhouses were moved to remote areas and undocumented immigrants were brought in and exploited mercilessly. But this history suggests it wasn't always like that. And and that in turn suggests it doesn't have to be. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You've done a great job of sketching the history there that, that, that sort of starts with, you know, from Upton Sinclair, I trace it myself, to you know, some of the brutalities he wrote about. And very interestingly, if you go back and read The Jungle, you'll see all kinds of passages where he's talking about not just the injuries that the workers suffer, but the feeling of degradation, the dirtiness. You know, they, he, he, there's a passage in the book where he talks about you can't even find a place to wash your hands. You know, and that's not just about getting, it's, it's about this sense of being stigmatized, right? You just, you're in there killing, you're with the blood and the, and the gore of this. But as you say, the, 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 there was a very strong union movement that didn't necessarily make the job any less bloody, but certainly did make it less dangerous, certainly did make it less degrading, uh, certainly made it better paying. That fell apart in the 70s through a very concerted corporate strategy led by a company then called IBP. And they started importing strike breakers from Mexico, basically, in in Nebraska and in other places. And that low-wage strategy took over the industry and is is especially apparent in the, the sector I look at, which is poultry slaughterhouses. So I know your purpose in this book is not to propose new legislation that will uh, solve this problem, but it does raise the question, especially with prison guards, how much of this is necessary? Of course, there's been a movement led by Angela Davis to abolish prisons so that no one is subject to this kind of brutality again. The question really is how much of this, the dirty work you write about, really is necessary? And if so, does it have to be that dirty? I hope there's a conversation on, on all, about all the forms of work I write about can be opened up. You know, I also write about uh, dirty tech and, and you know, the, the gadgets that we all use ha- has a form of dirty work that, that has just been um, outsourced and, and taken offshore, namely the mining that goes on for cobalt in the Congo uh, with child labor and brutal conditions and all kinds of middlemen, uh, these companies that sell from one to another, and that eventually makes its way to Apple and Microsoft and all the companies that we all patronize. 
and patronize. And, and I, I should say, you know, that, that's the point of the book. I'm trying to, to connect this dirty work to our lives, to show how, in fact, we rely on it, whether we see it or not. And so then that begs the question, well, what can you do about it? And my conclusion is, and I suggest very strongly, you can't do that much about it as an individual consumer. I mean, yeah, you could, you could stop eating meat. You could decide not to buy these gadgets. But someone else will keep buying them. And, you know, there are, there are plenty of customers um, lining up. Uh, the fast food chains will continue to profit. So the only real solutions are political and I would say are collective. Just as, as the responsibility for dirty work is shared, so too any, any way of altering this work has to be a sort of shared endeavor, a collective enterprise. We together share the responsibility for the harm done by dirty workers and for the emotional injuries they suffer. And we together can change what we require of them. The book is Dirty Work. The author is A.L. Press. A.L., thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.